Well, good morning. Fred has asked me to teach uh, one of these lessons this morning, and so I don't know if he's grading me to see if he finds me worthy to substitute in the future, or... Uh, so we will uh, be continuing in this uh, study of uh, dogmatics. Uh, today we'll be continuing in the vein of uh, what you would call early anthropology as well as image of God, as well as man and woman. There's, there's all kind of mixed up into what you would call a theology of man. Uh, and so uh, before we begin, uh, let's pray and, and get started. Heavenly Father, we... Uh, We thank you for the glorious salvation wrought by the blood of Christ on the cross. And we, the the church, the saints of God, sons and daughters of the Most High, we come here on the Lord's Day to set apart this day in worship of God Almighty. As we gather now during this time of teaching, this time of instruction, as well as as conversation, um, Lord, may you be glorified in our midst. Lord, through the Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and minds uh, to your true and holy word. Uh, God, as we we discuss uh, the matters of which should ultimately bring us through the Spirit's work and through Your Word a greater understanding of who You are and therefore a greater understanding of who we are, bringing us not to some place of of arrogant knowledge, but a place of closer worship with You that our affections would be turned completely more and more, day by day, moment by moment, through the sanctification of the Spirit in the ministry of your Holy Word, to the image of Christ. We pray this time in Christ's name. Amen. We'll be parking in, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28 this morning, bouncing back and forth, as well as talking about some of the things Fred has already covered, as well as delving into a few others, I think. But I wanted to start just as, as for, for, I guess, for purpose of my own, I haven't, I haven't been in the study, but that just, there's a real understanding that, that this, this entire aspect of what we're reading, these, these early stages of, of God's written word here in the book of Genesis, uh, we cannot read in, in isolation from the totality of, of God's revealed word. And so as I'm perhaps talking about certain things, you'll see me jumping forward to the New Testament or some other areas of the Old Testament. The reason is is that's how we're supposed to read the Bible. We're supposed to read it as a whole, one story. And so when we're talking about humanity, we're talking about Adam. Adam used both more often as the Hebrew word to describe humankind as a whole and at times to describe Adam as the representative, the the first man. And so when we're going around with this this morning, I just wanted to lay that out there so it's not not confusing in any way. Uh, So I I will begin this morning by saying, probably covering stuff Fred's already done, but when we're talking about the creation, we're talking about the created order and and what what we've already read in the first portions of Genesis is God's creation of the cosmos. All, all of this creation that you're seeing take place. How it is ordered out. And then you come to the, the point of Genesis 1, where then now we're going to see in 26 through 28, the narrative shifts to a type of poetry in Hebrew. Where, where now it's going to talk about there's this crowning achievement of the cosmos... And this crowning achievement, humankind is actually a gift. A gift to God's created order. And so humanity as gift, when we're talking about image of God and getting into that, you can't lose sight of the fact that the way that this is spelled out in creation, in Genesis, which is a polemic or an argument 
against every other belief system in the ancient Near East and anything else that would be outside of this revealed word to the people who are going and currently are coming out of slavery of Egypt who were who were used to to multitudes of gods and now they're going into a land of Canaan and they're also now going to be introduced to a new multitude of gods and they all have their own creation account and mankind is anything but a gift to the created order and so here God Almighty is is giving us this theology of man in relation to God, and he's doing it in the backdrop of all of these contending views. So everywhere the people of Israel go from the time that Moses receives this until the coming of Christ, they're to see themselves, they're to see humanity as a gift. And you see how quickly that went astray, right? Because when you get to chapter 3, the first thing you deal with then is murder. Murder after the fall. Brother killing brother. And then after that you have a new poetry where there's a boasting, a boasting of self, a boasting of, of, of the ability to do this and to do that when it comes from Cain, and then it goes to Lamech. And then it'll go back to Seth. And in all this, all the way forward towards the flood, towards Noah, you have this, uh, this insertion of this idea of, of humanity as gift, but now broken. And because of that brokenness, what happens? All of the cosmos suffers. So that which was gift is now a curse. And yet that aspect, that image of God, that that idea as gift to the created order is clear throughout all the Old Testament that that will be reestablished. And so when you are talking now in 2023 as a confessing, believing Christian man and woman, you are connected all the way back to this story all the way back to this theological truth that mankind is a gift to the created order. And while that was broken and marred by sin, Christ is the one who has redeemed that. And when you talk about the consummation, you know, when we talk about Christ returning and bringing all things new and, and new heavens, new earth, and getting rid of the sinful flesh and it being paired with redeemed and, and perfection, all of that is re-realizing this moment. Humanity as gift to the cosmos. And so we share in this, and we will be part of this fulfillment of that in the consummation when Christ returns. Is there everyone, or is everyone like, he's just making stuff up? So, let me, let me put something else out there. Uh, when you're talking about image of God, when you're talking about Adam, when you're talking about mankind, humankind, created to establish God's kingdom, there has to be a, a, a pressing question, or at least, at least an obvious statement by the way this is written and the way it's progressed throughout salvation history, is that man's identity is found in what? God's in the answer, certainly. Man's identity is found in how he relates to God. And in his relation to God, he then reflects or mirrors God. The city on the hill. What was the point of that? That Israel was amazing? No, the point of it was a people who worship God according to his law and show themselves separate from the lost dignity of fallen mankind shine in the midst of it. And so then if that spreads across all of the world, 
then that is, is mirroring God's glory. It's not the same as God's glory, but it's showing people God's glory in a very diminished state. And so we are created beings. We're part of the cosmos, but we're the crown of it. But as created beings, we are created, we are created by a creator. And so the distinction between us can never be lost. He's perfect. You guys have been doing attributes, right? Throw out some attributes. Who is God? He's he's omnipotent. Okay, what else? Omnipresent. Omniscient. We got all the omnis. What else is he? Righteous. Just. Loving, immutable, nice, holy, merciful. In any ways, do though what you're giving as God's attributes, yes, this is tying into last week's sermon. Is there any way that with these attributes you can look at fallen man and go, yes, we are all of those things? No, we're none of those things. And so, Humanity always has to understand the distinction between the creator or and the creation. Because that relationship is what's talked about here in Genesis 1. In Genesis 3, you see how the relationship is sundered. And then the rest of uh, revealed uh, history in the Old and New Testament is trying to find a way or, or revealing the way how that relationship will once again be made new. So, the Bible informs us of our role, introduces us to the director. How we understand ourselves dictates how we behave. So, as an example, some of you might not know some of these names. Emil Bruner may have overstated the case, but he put his finger on the importance of the concept. The most powerful of all spiritual forces is man's view of himself, the way in which he understands his nature and his destiny. Indeed, it is the one force which determines all the others which influence human life. Going back farther, Plato pictures Socrates as a man obsessed in his quest for wisdom. Namely, anyone familiar with it? What is his quest to do? To know who? himself. The author of the creation narrative understood the necessity of self-understanding. The dignity of being human is one pillar of the Christian faith. Human beings are not slaves to capricious gods, nor are they victims to cataclysmic forces beyond their control. Rather, they are called by God to exercise authority on this earth in relationship with him. Now, Today, tragically, in what we call post-Christian age, there's a, a, a widespread rejection of biblical dignity. With atheism, new humanism, the loss of faith in God more than ever in the Western world, faith is on the decline in people who profess any type of faith, much less Christian faith. So through that, dignity has been lost. One author by the name of Pat Tillich wrote, God died in the 19th century and man died in the 20th. So moderns esteem themselves, and imagine the irony, esteem themselves as animals. And yet, in the same manner, usurp the authority of God by placing themselves or something else on his throne. What I mean by animals. Evolutionism contends that humankind is only a continuum on the same continuum with animals. The only issue is figuring out what kind of animal. The concept of human beings as animals reflected in the writings of non-Christian intellectuals as well. Aristotle defined man as a political animal. Edmund Burke defined him as a religious animal. Benjamin Franklin as a tool-producing animal. Thomas Carlyle, who took Franklin's definition, 
and just said he was a tool-using animal. For others, we were less than animals. Robert Louis Stevenson considered man as but a devil weakly fettered by some generous belief. Another known as B.F. Skinner said that because humans are entirely shaped by forces outside their will, they have no will, no freedom, and they have no dignity. So in that view, evolution is too optimistic. Humans are chemicals no different from plants, rocks, and so nothing more than objects subject to the same physical laws. Now, that's enough quoting. Do you see that in your world today? The loss of human dignity. Does anyone want to give an example? Where do you see it? Abortion. What is the argument for that would, that would lead you to say uh, there's a loss of dignity of the human person? It can't be just the act, right? The act comes after people come to an idea that there's, there's a loss of humanity. Sure. Yeah. What else? A loss of dignity in society. Euthanasia, same same kind of idea. I didn't hear it. I was kidding because everyone, yeah. So how do you see that then? Yeah. What else? The lack of dignity. And, and, and the importance, remember, the backdrop of this is the importance. That was quite the smile. What were you about to say? Oh, okay. Okay. An explanation? Right. It's celebrated. Hookup culture, okay. Okay. Yeah, so all of that kind of comes into the following, if you will. What began as a philosophy called the imperial self, although they would never agree with it, which is based on natural theology... And it's actually the foundations of postmodern thought. It was called the sovereign self. The sovereign self decides truth by itself and for itself, not by a source of authority outside of yourself. It started a long time ago with the credo of believe in yourself. So, so both of these things, the idea of postmodern loves self as God not God as outside of self. Does that, are you tracking, if there's a creator-creature distinction, who the creator is outside and wholly other than his creation, and yet in our world what has shaped, what has shaped Western civilization in the last several decades has been a celebration of nothing external. It's all in here. And so it should be no surprise if that becomes the dominant anthropology, if that becomes the dominant belief of mankind in a culture, is it a surprise where we are today? No, okay, good. I was like, <laughs> I won't say anything. Uh, I'll, I'm, just due to time, Fred, I apologize. When I said this to my, when I was doing my lesson out loud, it only took three hours, and then I was like, 
I'll, I'll shave it down a little bit. I'm not even out of the intro, and it's 9.30. I think I might have to. All right, so, so arrogant humankind began to lose their footing. The lost dignity, they lost dignity. Now I'm talking kind of more, more modern era. When Sigmund Freud contended that humankind is motivated by collective ancestral impulses, when Karl Marx claimed they were ruled by economic necessity, when Freud said they claimed they were ruled, I'm sorry, when Freud claimed that, said they were ruled by their libido. And so humanity has been under the threat of forces of their own making for a long time. And so when we think of this, this reality of, of our identity being found in our relation to our creator, and so then it's when I say no surprise, when you excise creator from your thinking of who you are, is it any wonder the terrible things that come about? So the depraved mind creates understandings of the identity of humankind that kills society as surely as a disease kills the body. The depraved notions of what it means to be human lead to unrealistic Marxist social programs which lead to Lenin's bloody revolutions, to fascism, to abortion, euthanasia, individualism, sexual license, the denial of biblical doctrines of the husband-wife relationship. Human misconceptions about what it means to be human have had catastrophic, deadly social consequences. God created Adam humanity, and therefore only God can reveal to us our identity and function. Without the biblical revelation, we are lost in a maze of confusion. Thus, in becoming being and perishing, all creation is wholly dependent on the will of the Creator. That, that really was the introduction. I'm sorry for not timing that better. Any thoughts on that other than that was long-winded? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, when worldviews clash and the worldviews are based on the foundation of whatever prevailing thought at the time is, in a few years there's going to be a new prevailing thought. I mean, we're talking about kind of modern things, and you mentioned transgenderism. Anyone 10 years ago? think that that was even a possible conversation, like a serious conversation that wasn't like on the onion or something like that? No, no one did. I mean, the groundwork was all there. Uh, Carl Truman's book, um, uh, The Rise and, and Triumph of the Modern Self, he maps like basically 200 years of, of basically thought that led up to it. But... He's a historian, so he, that, that, but, but the average, the normative person in living a life, none of us would have imagined, rewind 10 years ago, that the conversation we're having about human identity would ever be considered a serious con. I, can be, I know because I, was a, I became a believer in my mid-20s, as a complete unbeliever if someone would have brought that argument to me it would have just been laughter like are, are you being that's funny i guess but like what are but if someone was serious i can't imagine but yet that's where we are and so let's now take the argument to the scriptures let's go to genesis 1 26 through 28 all of this really is leading up to men and women, but, but, but I, I wanted to 
do what Fred does when I ask him to teach for me? Yes. So look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, Fred Fred covered Imago Dei, right? Okay, so you guys have already covered that. So I, what's that? Image of God, sorry, yes. And so I'm not going to cover all of that. I was just going to simply, as, as we move forward into what I want to talk about is 27. So look at 27. This is a, this is a translation that's it's probably a little more wooden and... and I hope no one who knows Hebrew would contend with me. Well, that would, I think, only be one person in the room. So you could say God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created Adam, because that's the, the name. Humankind is Adam, but it's, it's in, the, um, in the tense that is not a, a name of an individual, it, but it is the word where you get mankind from, and it's used throughout the Old Testament. Male and female, he created them. And so, when you're thinking back to the rest of of what you've already read in Genesis, what was created? You're introduced to God doing what? Speaking. Creating, right. I mean, you're all right. And then, so what is created? Beast of the field. Fish of the sea, heavens and earth, plant life, right, all that. Every sphere of creation that's covered, now, what has he said this new creation's relationship to the previous creation is? To rule it, have dominion over it. Okay. Anyone else? Yep, to work in it. To fill it, yes. Does anyone know what that theological term is called or has been used throughout church history? It has mandate, it's not masculine. No. Nope. Read it again. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and the earth, and over every creeping thing. Take note of that. Have have dominion over all of that. And then it and it repeats the phrase of the creation aspect, and it and it turns or flows to poetry. And then it said, in 28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, now what? Not just subdue the previous creation, but now also do what? Fill the earth. And fill the earth and subdue it. So subdue is kind of related, but it is a different word. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and every living thing that moves on the earth. Again, the idea is this new creation... Is it the same? Because what happens when what happens when when everything else is created? Are they given commands in such a manner? No, it's after what? After their kind. And then now 
this creation is made, humanity, and they are told, rule over it, subdue it, and in and, and the garden, but then representing the cosmos, the, uh, particularly the, 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 the creation itself, fill it. I know at least one person in the room knows what this is called. It's called the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. Is there any other places in the Bible where that's either specifically said again or used throughout? Anyone? Noah. Where else? You went all the way to the end. Yeah, yeah, then no, sorry. Yeah, what is the Great Commission? The Great Commission, what is the command? Okay, what is what is the church? Is it old creation or is it new creation? It's new creation, and now go and spread the gospel and do what? multiply. And so we see the idea as a theological idea that's throughout. God's representative people, the intent was to spread and subdue over all of the creation. And it begins just with this moment when the author switches to the poetic style because there's a grandeur of the subject matter. When, when, it, when, it goes, when it goes from 26 to 28 and 27 is sandwiched between the mandates, you see in between in 27, it switches to a, a type of, of Hebrew poetry. And so it's a, a... What's the right way to describe this? It's four words, Hebrew words in each line. And it's with a specific change in narrative style. And it is meant to grab the reader or the hearer to go, oh, this, this part is important. So in between 26 and what we have is 28, you have this, this momentous occasion of, of reiterating that now this creation, that, that humankind, Adam, how is it specifically different from everything else that was created? No, that was, that was an actual question. The birds, the fish. Is there a moment where God says, in... No. What does it say? But for humanity, in his image. And you guys covered image of God. Um, Sorry. Trying to get down here to skip a little bit. So in this in in twenty six. Let us make man or image after our likeness, let him have dominion, or or that that phrase is just let them rule. Um, it infers that this image bearer the capacity, the ability, and the purpose, as it goes with, with working, to exercise dominion. So, so the image, and this is one of the parts I want to talk about. When we think of image of God, what did you guys come up with last week? What is the image of God? Fred's? Someone said Jesus? That's, that's true. I was going to say, are all the, were all these people here last week? Right. Yeah, so, so one of the things that, that all, all true, one of the things I also wanted to hit on as it goes to this cultural mandate is it's also man's function. The way in which man functions or his purpose is tied to the very dignity 
and image of God in which he was created. And so this aspect of 126 through 28, of subduing and ruling over, and all of these aspects, that's not the form of the image of God, but it is the function of the image of God. As God's representative, as ambassador, Adam was to do these things. Eve also was meant to do these things in partnership with her husband. Their children, prior to the fall, and then their families that would come out, were all supposed to do the same thing, both in form and in function, exercise their imago Dei, their image of God. So one of the things is to let them rule. And so uh, one author, uh, his name is uh, Bruce Waltke, probably one of the few people, names that some of you might recognize from the other names that I said earlier, entails, it tails more than human form and the capability of social relationships. It confers the function notion of duty and authority. And so this was a common idea in ancient Near Eastern literature. It was widely believed that a god's spirit lived in any statue or image of that god. And so when you were thinking of all the things like uh, when you're reading, you know, any of the Old Testament books and, and you're, you're hearing things like, oh, the statue of Dagon, which was like basically a merman. The, the, the belief was is that Dagon's spirit lived in that statue. And that's why they worshipped the statue. And that's why they offered things. It was, it was same for all kind of pagan idolatry and, and, and polytheistic religions. Is the statue was a representation the idol was a representation, but the ancient Near Eastern religions believed that the spirit inhabited that image of the god. And so the image could function as a surrogate for the god's dominion wherever it was placed. Put the statue here. Now you're rethinking like the statues you have in your yard, right? Unless it's like wizards or things like that. It could be a surrogate for god's dominion wherever it was placed. Think of it in terms of thinking of yard statues, uh, you put a statue in a yard. Christina watches this show. She's not here, so I can say this. She watches this show with Ava called The Ugliest Shows... No, The Ugliest Houses Somewhere. I, I, I don't know if it's the world or if it's Amer- is it America. Okay. And one of them I happened to see, which I thought was the most awesome house I've ever seen in my life, had a giant statue of Poseidon like in a fountain right when you drove in. And, and it was just this massive statue of Poseidon with a trident, and then the whole house had these huge statues. But the person who built that house probably was like, this is going to be awesome. But in the ancient world, it would have been a sign that this place belongs to Poseidon because his statue is here. So he's represented. His image is showing his authority over this place. Does that make sense? And so the authority that man has to to rule over all of the rest of the creative order is because of what you guys talked about last week, his function. His and her function as image bearer is to represent their creator And because they are an image bearer of the creator, his authority is bestowed on them to rule over. So when you see Adam naming the animals, he's exercising. He's exercising his function as image bearer. And even to this day, to tie it together, even during the fall, what else does it say? Work. Cultivate all these things that then will be attributed to man and woman when, when, when Adam is created, Eve is created, and they begin to function as this, this unit together, this oneness. Every aspect of what they do is fulfilling that. And even today, yes, when you work and in your frustration of your work or in your frustration as as mother or, or, or whatever it might be, you're dealing both with 
your function as an image bearer, and yet now dealing with the frustration that comes from what? The fall, the flesh, sin. And yet in its beauty, as it's instilled before the fall, there's a joy and that there's a fulfillment in Adam and Eve's work as they seek to subdue, as they seek to rule over, as they seek to fill the earth, doing so at every moment, understanding what's the relationship called? The creator-creature distinction. How do we know that? God spoke to Adam and told him what to do. God walked in the garden. There was this undeniable understanding of their relationship to the Creator. And in so, everything they did as representative, even with the short amount of text that we actually have of Adam and Eve, the implication is the perfection and the beauty and the joy of the image bearer that they would bring to the one who gave them their image, the creator. And so everything they worked around, every aspect of the relationship in their perfection prior to the fall had to have been in a state of full understanding that this is what we were created for. Glorifying God in what? Everyday life. So, as we step out onto the stage of life, we're to understand that the blessed God crowned all of us. What do I mean by that? I just went through the whole rule, subdue, the authority that is exercised in doing that and working. When you think of the rest of creation, what is mankind's role in terms of authority over it? Is it not total? What do you mean was? Okay. Okay. Do you, do you think the mandate is different or just that we can't fulfill it? Okay. Okay, good. Completely? Okay. Absolutely, yeah. Isn't there an aspect, though, of God giving man this, this particular cultural mandate as his representative? That would mean that man like, is exercising it according to his discretion and her discretion as a representative of God, kind of like given an assignment um, by your boss, but you're given freedom to just come up with the end product. And so I think, I think that was probably my, my point, Stephen, is that at all times, though, Adam and Eve understood in a sense that even, even like a fallen man can't understand the, the exact way in which they were created and related to, uh, in their holiness, related to creator. And so I, I think that the authority because it's, it's given by God, is total over the earth. Our inability to do so because of the fall, I would say, does not take away from the reality of the mandate. Think of it this way. What is the, what is the theology behind the environmentalist religion? Not people who are just like, hey, let's 
cut down less trees. But the environmentalist movement has a theology behind it. Not just an ideology that's based on let's cut less trees, let's pollute less. What's the actual theology behind it? It's the earth is living, breathing, and we're parasites or fleas. And so as such, then the earth, kind of the idea of like, if humanity forgets their relationship to their creator, what do they do? they create gods of their own making. And so then instead of celebrating the one who created the cosmos as a gift, they then worship the cosmos as a god. Does that make sense? And so the ideology comes from the underpinning of a theology of what it means, what the earth is. The earth is a living, breathing God who has birthed us all, and we're destroying her. And so there's a need to let her heal. And it's why there's so many what you would call anti-human aspects of what currently i'm just saying as as the world has gone mad over the last decade at almost a breakneck pace since the pandemic is now you have what what are the what are the energy policies for those of you who work in the energy world what are the new energy policies that are being touted by world or global powers yeah eliminate the use of fossil fuels which the, the closest estimate is, is you're talking about hundreds of millions of people dying. If you were to cut fossil fuels now and just say, just solar, baby, just windmills, half the world probably dies within a few years with an inability to heat themselves in winter, an inability to cook food, an inability to go. All of society has been built on these particular things and that collapse, when you think of it in a common sense way, is like, well, maybe in like 50 years we, we build some new technologies and we start weaning off of certain things, if that, even if that even helps. But that's not the point. The point and the desire is to stop it because it's killing the earth. And so the extinction of humanity is okay. There's a tenured professor at UT, and he's been there for almost three decades, if your kids go to UT, they probably will have them for, like, I think, Philosophy 101. He teaches in the humanities department. And one of his premises is that humanity is a, is a cancer on the earth, and the best thing that could happen for the world is a 99% extinction rate. Well, he makes $350,000 a year off of your tax money, that's the ideology, but that ideology doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes from people not understanding who they are in light of their creator, in light of themselves as a creature. And the glory, when, when you think of just these few verses we've, re, we've read, what was God's, what is God's, and what was God's plan for humanity? Life, relationship with him. Dominion, we're getting closer. I said something earlier about you all wearing crowns. To reign, to rule. Humanity was, was, was created as royalty. When we're talking about dominion over the cosmos, it, it's, it's, it's written in a manner to tell you, Everything that was created, the heavens and the earth, are under this creation's authority bestowed on them by the creator God. The, the magnitude of that authority then plays out in the New Testament, if you don't believe me. When, when the author of Hebrews says, don't you know what? That you will judge 
angels, kings and queens, priests and priestesses, all of the Most High God. That was the intention. All. And then now, in Christ, it will be fully realized. It's why all through the New Testament, sons and daughters, reigning, ruling, judging angels, what what awaits us in the consummation of Christ is the full reality of just these few verses of what was meant for humanity. Man and woman, ruling, reigning, subduing. That is God's glory that he bestowed on humanity and the crown that he bestowed on humanity. And as Christian men and women, that is your end. So now to take it all the way back. If you know that that's your end, when we think of the the mandate, the cultural mandate here, as it's tied to the Great Commission in the Gospel, what does that look like then for a people who know who they are in relationship to the Most High God, what their purpose is, what their identity is in the Most High God, looking at the world around them and seeing and being surrounded by people who do not. And then Christ simply tells his disciples, go. And so it is reignited, this cultural mandate. And now the church grows. And when you see the accounts in the book of Acts of people coming to faith and made into new creations, that is this idea of God spreading his people and them having and beginning the dominion that will be the reign of his kingdom in the consummation. You have a part in that. If there's one thing that we should not do, as, as, as a group um, often are, are called throughout church history as pietists, uh, people who separate themselves. If you separate yourself from society and just go, well, that's a fallen world, look at all those fallen people, Rather than engaging it and saying, God has, has sovereignty and reign over all of this, and for a short time, I'm empowered by the Spirit, given the Word. I need to engage them. If someone, if, if, if someone comes across your path and engages you in some manner of any of these kind of fallen ideas that, that are so prevalent today, you have to see that as an opportunity to exercise, to exercise the mandate. Because if you are able, in, 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 a, in as kind a way as possible, say, well, you know, that's, and that's, that's so wrong, that's so broken. And the reality is, is that there's a God. And he created all things. He created you. He created you for a a glorious purpose, and it is not this. And if that person repents and comes to faith, what do you celebrate? Not just their salvation, but the continued working of God and you exercising what he's given you. Your ability to spread the gospel and be a part of the church until the time that he returns is a, a, the ability of, of seeing this brought to its fruition. Um, any, any questions? I got about a third of a way through, but I'll, I'll revise next week. Do we have the ability to like just walk in somewhere and say, "Hey, Dominion," or do you just mean like the the world becoming good? Is that kind of? Yeah, I mean, how, how do we, we even 
Right. Right. Yeah, I think that when the authority over the beasts and the crawling and the fish and, and say, say, the natural world is, is implicit in what you see even in human innovation. Like that, that we're above the beasts, we're not with them. And so controlling it in totality, I, don't, I would say, I don't know if I agree that. I'm saying I probably agree with you that I don't think that that's even, that's not even the, the way in which we do it now. The way in which we do it now is, is share the gospel and, and people come to Christ and until such a time as Christ comes, then all, because all of creation is marred by sin, the natural world, the cycle of death and violence and all that. I think there is an aspect, an image bearer to image bearer, where, where you're talking about dominion over is image bearer versus an image bearer not having dominion, but at least for the good of the time that we're here, there's always a, a conflict of ideas because that comes right away. So I don't know if you were talking about that or just over heaven's earth, fish, animals, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else? Again, sorry for the slowness and the long-windedness and the 25-minute introduction, George. I mean, not that long ago, a hundred years ago, I mean, so long, you know, pretty long time ago. But in the scope of Christian history and modernism, a hundred years ago, and I know I've mentioned this often, like in the Netherlands, they elected uh, a, a confessional Christian as, as their prime minister. And his whole cabinet was either also a confessional Christian, or they, or they all were, and they were either church men and women, or they were seminary or, or some other type of professor. And, and they, I, I guess my point is, that's an impossibility in the United States and most modern countries. But what they did while they were in power, does anyone know the story, Abraham Kuyper, Herman Bavink, kind of the Amsterdam Free University. What was the point? It's in the name. Men and women get higher education. It was subsidized by taxes. Hospitals, schools, all of these things, it was kind of the, the emphasis was, what is the most good we can do in society? How can the Netherlands reflect the beliefs of, of a Christian nation. And for them, it was, it was the idea of serving the populace and, and particularly the poor and, and the widows and things like that. Post-World War II, in England, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's, who's a famous minister, but most people don't realize, like, after World War II, a vast majority of, of the population now, because of the loss of, of almost an entire generation, was illiterate. And so instead of having church in the beautiful Westminster Cathedral, 
they began having it in the street and asking people, and then they would have church in the street, and then afterwards, for, for hours, they would teach people to read using the Bible. And so I completely agree, because of the fall, impossible for us to do what Adam and Eve could have done and were supposed to do here in chapter 1. And yet, because of the Holy Spirit and the power of God and the gospel, it's not impossible for a, a society to be transformed by the gospel. And even, I would say, if you had miracle upon miracles, a confessing Christian government that looked like it did in the Netherlands, that looked like it did post-World War II England, where it wasn't mandating life in every aspect, but was just doing for the good of their neighbor, producing, while at the same time understanding man has fallen, and so they had a, a police force and there was, you know, laws were enforced. It made the society in both of those places, for a time, obviously, not anymore, but for a time it made it a really incredible place to live for a moment. And I think when we have brief moments like that, you can look at that and go as confirmation, like, see? See, that's the power of God, even in the fallen world, that when you have enough people who are redeemed together, agreeing to something, what is the good for humanity, look at the good it does. And then we also see in a separate manner, when you gather enough people who are sovereign in their own self and, and, and making gods of their own own making, and then now we see what that also does in society. But those brief glimpses at least show us one day when sin is crushed in totality and the consummation of Christ, we will rule and reign under the beauty of his glory. Um, I, I'll, I'll try to finish this up next week or even actually get to men and women uh, next week. So, uh, Fred, would you, would you mind closing? Sure.